0: A reading from Isaiah chapter 58, beginning with verse 1. Shout, shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you've not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I've chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see them naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. The
1: word of the Lord. My reading from First Corinthians chapter two, starting with verse one. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you I did not come with eloquence of human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony of God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the, of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden, and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would have crucified the Lord of glory. They would have not crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived the things God has prepared for those who love Him. These are the things God has revealed to us by His Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God's except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. The word of the Lord. Will you stand with me for the reading of our gospel?
0: A reading from the gospel of Matthew chapter five, starting with verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. We are in the season of epiphany. We're working our way through it. We're getting close to the end of it, and we find ourselves this morning in our gospel text in the middle of what we call the Sermon on the Mount, the sermon that was given by Jesus. Probably, no, not probably. It is the most famous sermon of all time. Um, Jesus's description of the kingdom of God is what we're going for here. He's describing this is what the new kingdom that's being revealed in Jesus looks like, I mean, revealed in me, looks like. And Jesus' description of the kingdom of God is a very new thing. And simultaneously, at the same time, it is also a very old thing. So it's a new thing and it's an old thing. When Jesus says the poor and the merciful and the mourning and the meek and the persecuted are the ones who are part of God's kingdom, he's saying something that would be shocking to his hearers in the first century, but it didn't come out of nowhere. It wasn't like he was the first one to kind of say that the underside of power, those who find themselves on the margins, on the underside of power, will be blessed because the reality is that's always been who God is. He's the one who goes to those on the underside of power, those on the margins. He is, that's who God is, right? Jesus, what he's doing here is so important. He's reminding God's people. He's reminding Israel of who they've always been called to be of who God is and who therefore they are called to be and the mission that they've been given. So that's why he says, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish your mission and your law and all that you've been given. I've not come to abolish them. I've called to fulfill them. I am the answer to which that was the call. I'm the response to which that was the call. Jesus is the revelation both of who God is and also who his followers are called to be. He leads us into that. Today, I wanna suggest that the church needs a regular reminder of who God is and of who we are. We need to be reminded of that over and over again. We need to know our story. So therefore, God is constantly both doing something new, but that thing that is new is always the fulfillment of something ancient at the same time. I think part of the kind of community that God is calling sacrament to be is a community that is both in one sense new and in one sense also ancient. And the two aren't a balance of one another. (laughs) The two are at the same time, right? We talk a lot around here about being a church of the three streams. And if you've been around here long enough, you know kind of that language that we've used that... um, that when we talk about the three streams of faith, it's one way of describing how the church today often groups itself in three kind of broad general groups. We have an evangelical expression of the faith, focus on scripture and evangelism. um, Some of the core doctrines we'll talk about here in just a minute And we have the charismatic tradition that emphasizes the work of the Holy Spirit, the dynamic and active work of the Holy Spirit, the way that the Spirit stirs our affections and the way that God's kingdom works in dramatic ways today. And then the sacramental tradition that we see emphasizing the unity of the church, the church being bound together, the creeds that have been passed down, church tradition, and then also the way that God is present with us in the sacraments. But when we talk about the three streams here and how we want to be a church of three streams, we're not talking about trying to just kind of balance the three streams and pull a little bit from here and pull a little bit from there, kind of as if if it's a buffet table. We kind of choose which parts of these that we want. Each of these streams has existed in history to remind the church of who we are. Each of these traditions are a reflection of the nature of who God is and the mission of the church. And the reason why movements have exists and things have sprung up over and over again is to remind the church, hey, there's part of your vocation, part of your calling that you've forgotten. So we need that again, right? So each of these traditions tends to kind of like pull the others in line. That tension is so important. And if you'll indulge me for a minute, I want to tease this out a little bit. So in the 1500s, we had this thing called the Protestant Reformation. Perhaps you've heard of it, it was a big deal. Um, And one of the main reasons for the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s was because the church had forgotten a big part of their mission, okay? The church was supposed to be, and is always supposed to be a blessing to the world, a reflection of God's grace, of God's reality and the church, and there was just one Western church at that time, the church had become corrupt and the church had become oppressive because she had detached herself from her calling and from her story. She became about earning the forgiveness of God, a God they perceived as distant, became superstitious and became detached from the Bible. Uh, many Many of us may not know that around this time, Um, a lot of people didn't actually have access to the scriptures. It wasn't as literate. Society wasn't as literate as we are today. And so often the priest or even just the hierarchy of the church were the only ones that were able to translate scripture. So your average person didn't have that. And then their translations were fine, (laughs) but they weren't great, right? And so there was all kinds of um, issues related to not being able to understand our story. So one of the practices that was one of the strongest for Martin Luther, the earliest reformer, was this practice of buying indulgences, this practice of uh, trying to buy forgiveness for yourself or for other people. And a lot of times the way it manifests itself is if you had a loved one who died, you believe that they were kind of paying their time in purgatory, so if you attended enough masses, which they would have several church services every single day that you needed to attend, you could earn enough indulgences to be able to buy their way through purgatory, <laughs> okay? So that's one of the things that was going on. It was oppressive. It was oppressing the people and they didn't understand grace and they didn't understand their story, right? So these reformers come along and they began to call that out, okay? So we have this Protestant Reformation that says, we need the scriptures, we need the Bible, Even today, when I talk to some of my friends in more sacramental traditions, they'll say, we love our tradition. There's so much that's wonderful about it. And yet I hear constantly from people, we need more biblical preaching. We need more biblical preaching in our tradition. Superstition is not as prevalent today as other things might be, but there's still that tendency at times towards the same thing. So in the 1500s, the reformers came along and said, we need to get back to the Bible. We need to recapture the scriptures. So now, if you read back then, the reformers were also very traditional, very sacramental, we could say. So go back and read Luther and read Calvin on the Lord's table and on those kind of things. They're very Catholic, we could even say, very traditional. But they also said their intention was to be more firmly rooted in the scripture. So that's why the Reformation spawned new translations of scriptures in every, everyday language and getting the Bible in the hands of everyday people. Then as time went on, we began to see other movements spring up. So, and I'm just like really shortening church history here. So forgive me, those of you that know the holes that are here. But, uh, but we had the Great Awakenings in the like 1700s and 1800s. So we had the first Great Awakening, Then we had the Second Great Awakening. And these were like these revival movements calling people back to God's grace, to their story, to the scriptures. And everything we know as evangelicalism today came out of these revivals. They're streamed back to these revivals that called people who were seen as detached from God's grace or detached from the scriptures, calling them to holiness, calling them to grace, calling them to right living. And yet over time, Protestant Christianity began to take on some different shape. Often the weakness of what became Protestant Christianity became about life and faith is about my individual interpretation of the Bible. So one of the unintended consequences of the Reformation is that many Christians began to idolize the Bible and began to detach the Bible from the church (laughs) to where they became kind of separate things. And so it caused thousands of denominations to split apart. We now have thousands and thousands of Christian denominations because they'd have a little disagreement about how they interpreted scripture. So they'd split apart from each other because the Bible is the final thing. That's in some senses is God. And so they break apart from each other. To reject Christian unity because they didn't interpret the scriptures the same way. Over time, what we see from evangelical Christianity is many churches became so rigid that they forgot that God is still working today. That God is not dead residing in the pages of a text, but that God is alive and speaking to us and speaking to the world. So many people who are my friends in evangelical churches today will say, I love my tradition, I love my background, but it's gotten so rigid. And it's been about what we're not and who we're separated from, as opposed to who we are and what our story is. So then we see this reality of the charismatic movement. Now, there have been Christians who've called themselves Pentecostals, Charismatics since the early 1900s, particularly the Azusa Street Revival. So there have been Christians who've called themselves Pentecostals, who've seen the dynamic work of God's healing and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But we began to see in the 1960s and 1970s, this, what we might call the the charismatic renewal or the uh, charismatic movement, the modern day, the neo-charismatic movement is what some people call it, where Christians in all different denominations began to have experiences with God that they couldn't explain with their previous categories. Experiences with God that were emotional and powerful and kind of beyond categories that they had for it. Some of the same things that happened to Christians in the Bible were happening to them healings, dramatic things that they hadn't seen in their lifetime were happening in their life. What's interesting, what a lot of people don't know is the charismatic movement, what we think of as the charismatic movement in the 1960s and 70s, happened first among Catholics, among Roman Catholics. And if you think about it, it makes sense (laughs) because traditional Christianity has affirmed in the sacraments that God is really somehow mysteriously present and with us in a way that we can't explain. And these charismatics started to go, God is somehow mysteriously present with us in a way that we can't explain, right? So it made sense that it happened first there. But then we see people from all different denominations are having these experiences, are having these encounters with God that are powerful, and it's waking up the church, and it's going, we were so rigid before, and God is still working today. Unfortunately, over time, charismatics begin to create a formula or a box for their experiences. It began to be perceived that God is only and always working in things that are dramatic or emotional. So experience starts to become, for some of these groups, experience becomes their root rather than scripture and the traditions and the, and the sacraments. I have a friend who's a professor at, the, at a charismatic university and he traces the history of this charismatic movement and Pentecostalism and finds that in early Pentecostalism, their liturgies and their doctrinal statements were really traditional. Like they had all these experiences, but their doctrines and their liturgies were the ones they got from their Methodist tradition or from their kind of older kind of traditions. But over time, they, he would say they devolved, not evolved, <laughs> over time. And they they started really sacramental and really scriptural. And then they became more and more focused on experience, on kind of how am I feeling and how am I experiencing this? So I talked about different common complaints in each of these different traditions. The common complaint among charismatic churches today, when I talk to my pastor friends there, is they go, I love my tradition, but at times it's so hypey, <laughs> so focused on experience, right? you can see how these traditions need each other, right? The thing that they're missing is what the other ones have. Okay, this is my thing, so I'm gonna get really excited about this. So so hold on, right? Our church here, and this does have to do with the Sermon on the Mount, okay? We're getting there. Our church seeks to be part of a movement of reminding the church who she is. That's it. So, if you don't ever remember Three Strings, you don't remember all that stuff, we're trying to remind the church of her story and her reality. And really, where that comes from is reminding the church of who God is. That God is the one who is near to us in the table and in baptism. He is the one who shapes us through patterns and even through rituals. Our God is the one who speaks to us in the scriptures. There were people who witnessed God's faithfulness to his people and it was ultimately expressed in Jesus and they passed that story on and passed it on and passed it on. So we need the Bible. We need the scriptures. And God is the one who today continues to speak to us. But not out of nowhere. America had this really strong history in the, in the 18th and 19th centuries of having all these religions spring up that heard God out of nowhere. <laughs> so there's a lot of the different kind of uh, minor religions in America that are really American and their people had just one dramatic experience, no tradition behind it, and it was all built on that experience. We believe God is speaking today and working today, but God is always consistent and faithful with our story, right, and with how he's revealed himself in Jesus, Okay. So the church always needs a reminder of who she is. Otherwise, the church will become whatever the narratives of the world tell her to be. There's always a danger that the church would be only something old. So that means we forget the activity of the Holy Spirit working today. There is also the danger that the church would become only something new, right? We are an ancient and an active faith. So who is the church? Who are we called to be? Some of you really enjoyed the church history excursion there, and some of you are just ready to move on from it. So we're gonna move on from it. But God's people are, Jesus says in our text, the salt of the earth. What what does salt do? Well, salt is flavoring, right? It's one of the very basic seasonings in our world are salt and pepper. It adds taste to things. Salt can make flavor stand out and come alive. If you've ever made hot chocolate before and you just add just a little bit of salt, it brings out the chocolate. It's wonderful. You didn't know that. People didn't know, oh, good, do it. It's gonna be great. You're gonna love it. <laughs> um, I'm, not, I'm gonna resist the urge to start listing recipes for you now. Um, <laughs> Jesus says that Israel's called to give flavor to the world, to give the world its zest and its gusto. Salt is also a preservative. That's how it was used in Jesus's time. So you would coat meat in salt and it would last longer. Way before modern refrigeration, salt is what kept things preserved. In a sense, the church is called to preserve the world, to keep the world fresh. We live in a world that because of sin is prone to decay, right? It's prone to go down ways that are gonna cause it to rot, right? Right? Sin leads us further and further into rot. But Israel, in Jesus's day, they had become so obsessed with power and the politics of the world that they were behaving just like everybody else was. They had separated themselves into all these political camps, right? And they weren't actually kind of being called or being who they were called to be. They were thinking about their positions. They were thinking about their squabbles. They started taking up arms against their enemies. Does any of this sound familiar? They had lost their flavor. They had lost their ability to be something different and to keep the world from rot. The church is called to always pull the world back to its freshness, to its ripeness, to the place of its origin. The church is to call the world to what it has been created to be. This is why it's so super critical that we don't get caught up in the same allegiances as the world as the church. Um, We live in such, I was just talking to Dave Moran before uh, this, but we live in such a tribal society where we have separated ourselves into like thinking and everybody who's part of my team is right and everybody who's part of their team is wrong. And the further that we've done that, the more simple our arguments have become right? To where there's no nuance, there's no conversation, there's no multiple thoughts about the same thing at the same time, right? It's all, I think this simple thing and it's right and you disagree with me, so of course you're wrong. If you agree with me, you're brilliant, but if you disagree with me, you're wrong, right? One of the reasons why I choose, one of the many reasons I choose to comment in church very little on political things is because I have noticed that the Christian leaders who are constantly vocal about politics lose their ability to call people back into God's story. They get lumped in as one of the teams, as one of the groups, right? And when they do comment, it falls on deaf ears because they've lumped them in with the culture wars of today. So I think we need to challenge ourselves. It's so tempting for us to jump into the teams of our world and the culture and say that has the final word. I'm not saying you can't belong to a political party. I'm not saying anything like that. I'm not saying you can't have perspectives or opinions. Definitely not saying we shouldn't call out injustice. We definitely need to do that, right? But we need to not let those narratives have the final word and let our faith have the final word. So who are you formed by? Are you most formed by President Donald Trump? Are you most formed by Bernie Sanders or Andrew Yang? Or maybe it's more subtle. Are you mostly formed by Pod Save America <laughs> or Ben Shapiro or Rachel Maddow or Joe Rogan? The intellectual dark web, whatever that is. I don't know really what that is. I'm not saying any of that's bad to listen to or whatever, but we've got to be critical about where is our identity lies. Like what's the story that we follow? Like those things might have truth to them, right? There's there may be certain truth and certain elements to things there, but that can't be our defining reality, right? We are all in some sense a foreigner. We we are called to live in and among the world, but we are not made of the stuff of the world. When Paul says we live in the world, but not of the world, that often gets misinterpreted. It's the idea of we are fully engaged and present with the world, but somehow we are not made of the same stuff as the world, that we're called to something different. We're called not to detach, but to challenge all the world's narratives. I saw this meme this week, throw it up there let you look at that for a second. <laughs> so, okay, that's not funny, I guess. I'll take it down. Um, the, uh, the thing I thought about that that struck me is that we are called, the church has always been called to be a non-anxious presence in the world. That doesn't mean we don't care about the things that are going on. We care deeply. That, can ca- that should cause us angst and often anger when we see broken things. When we see families separated at the border, that should make us righteously angry, right? When we see wealth inequality to extreme, that should make us angry. When, when we see these, these cultural issues, it should, it should cause us to be frustrated. But yet we are called to live as a non-anxious presence to how we respond to one another and our behaviors to always be motivated by the way of Jesus and not by the way of fighting and bickering and arguing. One of the mistakes I think the church has made in culture is to think that we're, to call the world back to a better time. We think that, oh, if we could just get back to back this time when things were better, then that would be good. But if you look at church history, there was never really a golden age in our world. There was never really a time that everything was good. Some may complain about our cultural mores slipping or think of a time when the world was less violent or when people were less sexually promiscuous. But this golden age is really a myth. Things have always been rough. So if you think about it, like when, was, when do we think was the golden age or the perfect time? Was it the early church? Well, we've learned around here that there are just as many issues with uh, sexual promiscuity in the early church, but also throw in with that idol worship and class struggles, and lots of issues dealing with blood sacrifices. That was not a perfect time, right? What about the time right after the Protestant Reformation? Well, that was a golden age, right? Well, there was a whole lot of anti-Semitism going on around that time, right? Some really not good stuff. How about some people here, 1950s America, You know, you hear some people my parents' age will say, the time I grew up, 1950s America, right? You go outside and there was no violence and kids could play down the street and everything was great. Yeah, it was a great time unless you were a minority, right? The church is not to call people backwards. (laughs) In some ways, the church is called to call people forwards. Not to something like superficial human progress, like, like, yeah, we're just gonna get better and better and better, but towards God's new world. Salt means being connecting the world to its origin, to who it has been created to be, but often connecting it to its origin and also simultaneously connecting it to its future. So God calls his people to be salt, flavor, preservative, right? Stand out, give the world flavor. But also God has called his people to be the light of the world, Jesus says, have you ever heard the old song? I think all of us hopefully have the, this little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine, this little light of mine. It's often today a children's song and I was taught it with motions, right? So well, I'll learn the choreography today, but no. Um, but it comes from this verse and we don't know exactly the origin of this song, but it was, it was written a long, long time ago, but it was used predominantly in the 50s and in the 60s during the civil rights movement as one of the freedom songs okay? Uh, Bernice Johnson Regan is a scholar who writes about this song. And uh, she's a scholar of the civil rights movement. And she says this song was really important to the civil rights movement. And it was really important for a couple reasons. First of all, it was an I song as opposed to a we song. This was important. Um, kind of like, you know, they, they sang a lot the song "We Shall Overcome," which is a wonderful song. But this little light of mine had an eye" sense to it, was a little different. Eye songs were important, because when you were in the middle of a protest, when you were sitting at a lunch counter or on a bus or even in jail, in the midst of a culture of fear, where the tendency was to hide, you would sing at the top of your lungs, "I'm going to let it shine. I'm not going to hide." In the midst of fear and injustice, I'm gonna step up here. I'm not even gonna hide in the crowd. I'm gonna choose to let my life light shine. You were saying, I'm in this. I'm putting aside fear and showing that I am here to let my light shine. The other thing that was important was that this was a culture where many in the black community were told simply to blend in. That their best of course of action was not to speak up, but to just fit in and that would be their best strategy. This song basically says, I'm standing for truth. I'm standing for justice. I'm standing for love and equality and I'm going to let my light shine. Well, the words of Jesus today tell us that God's people have always been called to be a light shining people. Israel's purpose was to be a light to the nations. That's their story. Light not only exposes It directs. It gives people who are blundering around in the dark the opportunity to see. What happens when you wake up and none of the lights are on and you've gotta see something, right? You look for a light. I need that light to direct me and to show me which way I'm supposed to go. That's what light does. One of the major challenges for Jesus is that God's light bearers had actually become part of the darkness. And we still see that today. We look at our world and we go, but look at all the pain that's been caused by Christianity and by Christian leaders, right? It's because often our tendency is we go after the darkness instead of embracing the light. And that's his warning to Israel. You are supposed to be a beacon of hope to the world. You're supposed to be a city on a hill. So in Christ's followers, there is this new community that lives out this mission. That the formation of their character, the way that they live, would be a sign to the nations of the world that their God was God indeed, and they should worship Him too. Now, this raises all kinds of questions. Um, Jesus was not only the 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 only Jew or was not the only Jewish teacher in the first century. There were a lot of Jewish teachers, and he wasn't even the only person to claim to be the Messiah. There were a lot of people that came up and said, "I'm the Messiah." So what makes Jesus's message so special? Why was Jesus different than anybody else? Why is he any different than the Pharisees and what the Pharisees were doing? Jesus was describing for us what the kingdom is. And the Pharisees had this really interesting perspective. They were so focused on behavior and they were focused on it in a way that it separated them from other people. So the idea was a Pharisee, of the Pharisees was you better live right and live according to the detailed law because that makes you better than all the people who don't. It separates you, which was never the heart of God's law. When God gives instructions, his heart is never separation of people, that there's good people and there's bad people. No, the heart is, here's a way I've given you to live that's better, live into that way. So the Pharisees believed we do these certain behaviors so that we can be part of the in-group and then we can clearly distinguish who's part of the in-group and who's part of the out-group. But it's wrong to say, yeah, Jesus was unconcerned about behavior. Like, like the Pharisees were concerned about behavior. Jesus just wanted your heart and your emotions. He didn't really care about how you lived. No, that's, that's wrong to say that. He's saying clearly here, he didn't do away with the Jewish law. In fact, what's striking about this verse is how much he says actually, you need to take it up a notch. Like you need to live more holy than the Pharisees. Not to separate you from other people, but because my kingdom is here and it's way better than anything else you're gonna see. What Jesus is doing, and and I think that's intimidating when Jesus says you need to have righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees. But what Jesus is doing here is he's speaking about God's kingdom breaking in in such a way that change comes not just from the right teaching, but comes from a change at the core of who we are. In other words, Jesus is not interested in behavior for behavior's sake. I have so many parenting analogies now because I'm, my child is, lives a life. And, uh, <laughs> and there's just so much of this that I'm like, I don't want her to just, when I say clean her room, the ultimate goal is not that she just huffs around and cleans up her room, right? The ultimate goal is that I want her to see that we want to take care of this house that we've been given, right? And there's this intention that we have to this. Jesus is never interested in our behavior just for our behavior's sake. He's interested in our change, in the whole person being transformed by this new kingdom. And you'll notice in your own life that true lasting change in your behavior only comes from that kind of place. And this is important as we think about other people. You can never shame someone into changing, okay? You can't, you can, they'll change for a short time. They may change for a little bit in a warped kind of way, right? But going to them and shaming them for what they're doing or their behavior or who they voted for is never going to actually create lasting change in their life, right? Guilt and shame don't have long term changing effects. Or um, another thing that doesn't last is trying to be better or fit a certain social mold just for that. Well, I ought to do better because I need to be this kind of person. No, it comes from a change at the core of who we are. We are so compelled by the love and grace of God and his invitation to be part of the kingdom that we are transformed. Transformed. And the major difference between Jesus's interpretation of the law and the Pharisees is that the Pharisees' version always leads to separating with those who don't live up. That's the whole point of the Isaiah passage today. These people were doing all these sacrifices, but they're simultaneously oppressing the poor in their midst. Going, yeah, you got the sacrifice part right, but then you're oppressing the poor, so I don't wanna hear about your fasting. I don't wanna hear about your 30-day fast if you're not gonna care for the poor, right? It doesn't matter. It was obvious that external holiness was more important to them than true transformation. Jesus' commands about the law always lead us to those who are far away. They always lead us to embrace the foreigner and the stranger. They always lead us towards mercy and love. And that's how the law was intended in the first place, as a light in the darkness. But here's one of the things about Jesus that's so amazing. He didn't just teach, he lived out his teaching. He taught the disciples and then he said, now watch me do that. (laughs) Teaching and living are always supposed to go together. Jesus taught us the kingdom and then he lived the kingdom. He taught us to turn the other cheek and then he really did it all the way to the cross. He taught us to love our enemies, and then he really did it. He taught us the story of the prodigal son, and then he went to those who were prodigals and he hung out with them. And here, he taught us to be salt and light, and that's exactly who he is. And he showed us that it's not just about doing the right thing. It's about your entire life being changed by this new kingdom and the whole world being changed by. He was salt and that he showed a broken world, a world that had political and religious structures that were broken. He showed that world what true love really looks like. He was the preservative, pointing us back to who we were created to be and pointing us forward to how the world one day will be. He was light in that he exposed violence and hatred and malice in our world, taking all of our sin upon himself and dying for us and rising again, showing us that he conquered that very sin. And he became a city on a hill, a beacon of light drawing all people to himself. I think this is relieving because when we read the Sermon on the Mount, sometimes I think we think it's a list of moral and ethical commands only but really it's a description of who God is, of the kind of God we serve and the kind of people he's calling us to be. This is such a relief for me because our hope is not in ourselves. My hope is not in me and I thank God for that. This is not about us just creating progress in our world. It's about trusting him, the true salt and the true light. Today, as with every week, God is doing something new. He's doing a new thing. I hope God does new things in your heart and in your life. But that new thing is always also an ancient thing, reminding the church of who we are. So I hope you hear these words today as words of freedom. You are free from the rot of sin and death and freed to be flavorful. You are free from having to pick a cultural camp for every headline from chicken sandwiches to halftime shows. You are citizens of a different kingdom which is turning the world upside down. You are free to be light in dark places. You are free from what other people say about you. Paul said that the worst thing people could do to us is kill us. If you really have that perspective and you go, well, the worst thing they could do is kill me. I'm gonna live and do what's right. And you really hold that loosely enough, gosh, think about what you could accomplish. If fear didn't hold us back and we're really just to live in the way of Jesus, all right, I'm gonna stop. That's liberating. When we do that, we can stand and link arms with other people who are hurting, can't we? We can be who God has called us to be. Because of that light, we're drawn in. Because of that light, we're invited into the kingdom of God, this new way of being in the world, amen.